Welcome to the Breathe, Sleep, and Be Well podcast, where we uncover a hidden epidemic right under our noses, an epidemic that most often begins right after birth. We aim to engage in casual conversation in a way that raises awareness, exposes misinformation, and challenges us to understand that just because something is common does not mean that it is normal. There is a difference between not being sick and being well. In our goal of maintaining a casual conversation format, we hope that you, our listeners, will engage in the conversation through our platform. Our cardinal goal is to provide easily accessible yet accurate information to the public at large and facilitate a discussion between the healthcare provider and the patient in a way that targets root cause of common diseases and dysfunction rather than merely managing the symptoms. I'm your co-host, Brendan Cruz, and I hope to bring an understanding of social media and communication to highlight my father's journey over the past 15 years. And this is my co-host, Dr. Mark A. Cruz, who has been connecting the dots and teaching on this complicated subject since 2006. To learn more about Dr. Cruz, view his curriculum vitae at markacruzdds.com biographical hyphen profile. Without further ado, Here's the conversation. His name is Hans Selye. Okay. He actually has written a lot about it, and he's the one that coined the word, or attributed to coined the word stress. And, um, of course, stress could be also defined in engineering terms as well, but let's just stick to okay, yeah. uh, the biologic terms of the way it came up, is, is uh, that he was stressing these rats out, and these rats, rat experiments. And he actually came up with a list, I can't remember if it's 10 or 12, Salier's um, markers of stress. Okay. But, um, so the reason why I'm bringing that up is that one um, sleep physician researcher from Stony Brook in New York, uh, Avram Gold, uh, who worked a lot looking at doing a lot of research having to do with upper airway resistance syndrome or what's called inspiratory flow limitation. In other words, having kind of problems breathing. And I'm talking about really nuanced problems, problems that oftentimes patients are not or individuals are not even aware of it. Like they have a deviated septum, they can't breathe very well on one side of the nose, but they're not that aware of it. Um, They just are aware of maybe some symptoms or whatever. That's happens more often than not. So if you ask somebody subjectively, can you breathe through your nose okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah. When you actually look and you see they can't, but it's all they know. Okay, but what's that have to stress? Well, because uh, this researcher actually uh, was inspired by two individuals. One was Hans Selye, where he was looking at um, the stress response from not being able to breathe adequately or breathe very well and therefore sleep very well. And the other one was Robert Sapolsky, um, neuroendocrinologist that, that um, he's very well known, wrote one of, his, uh, one of his books called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it goes into you know, the whole concept of parasympathetic versus sympathetic response. So our autonomic nervous systems are really governing all our functions behind the scenes, if you will. That's why it's called autonomic. Your heart rate, your breathing rate, you know, digested, all these things. Subconscious things. It's a subconscious thing, right. And so um, 
he talks about how every mammal, every mammalian species on the planet is supposed to function in what's called parasympathetic coherence, meaning that there's the rest and digest side of the autonomic nervous system, and then there's the fight or flight. So we evolved to have a fight or flight response to a stress to get to save our lives. So back in the day, if a cave bear came around the corner or a saber-toothed tiger, you had that adrenaline dump and and you know, you'd run up the tree quickly, you know, not even thinking about a reaction, it's just to live another day, mm-hmm. right? But that happened very, very infrequently as an example. And okay. so um, he talks about how the zebras that's out in the Serengeti, out in the plain, you know, every once in a while it would get chased. The whole herd would get chased by a lion, right? And so let's say that happens once, once a month. And um, as soon as that zebra sees that it's outrun the lion or that the lion's given up because it just stops, it stops as well. It doesn't keep on running because that's right. a waste of energy. Right. And what's it do? It puts its head down on the plane and starts eating again because that's survival is dependent on, as a mammal, we have a very high metabolic rate. By definition, we're warm-blooded. We're very active. We have to consume constantly food. And, and so that's having to do with um, this individual, this, this uh, individual zebra does not remain in the sympathetic or the fight or flight side of the autonomic nervous system for very long because if it did, it would have to eat more. It's very inefficient, you know, as far as like the um, blood supply, metabolism. It has, it functions best when you're calm. Okay, I think I see where you're going with this. Are you going to talk about humans? Well, yeah. So, so let's look at, if I were to really summarize for each and every one of my patients in a very short description of what I would want for them is I would want them to be in parasympathetic coherence 95% of the time, right? So what does that mean? That you're breathing well, you're sleeping well, you're not clenching and grinding, you're not refluxing, um, you are, um, uh, you know, digestion is great. Uh, And so that's the way we were designed as a mammal, breathing efficiently through the nose, and as a result, being able to sleep efficiently as well. So what Abram Gold talked about in challenging Christian Guimano, who is from, you know, now passed away at Stanford, one of the giants that defined the specialty of sleep medicine. Um, He basically, and that's who defined what's called upper error resistance syndrome. You know, what we see with a very large segment of the population. Um, I think I cited previously some of the studies in what we call skinny woman syndrome, Um, young to middle-aged females that otherwise look really, really healthy, but they have what's called a functional somatic profile. They have a lot of symptoms, anxiety, depression, irritable bowel syndrome, headaches, TMD, clenching grinding, you know, and, and, you know, thinking that it's their boyfriend or the traffic or school or whatever that's really causing the problem. Actually, they're having flow limitation. 
and you could see it in the face. Flow limitation, like airway in breathing. Flow, yes, yeah. right. And and so so uh, I the 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 way I try to describe it to a patient that that really understands it is, you know, I'll, I'll ask the question, okay, you know, have you ever done yoga? Yes, I've done yoga. I go, well, um, could you tell me a little bit about how do you feel after you've done yoga? There's like some thinking and pondering. I feel relaxed. I go, what does that mean? Well, I feel really, really just at peace. I feel really good. And then I say, do you understand what's happening there? You know, it took you an hour to get to that point. Why is it so effortful? Well, I was focusing on the breath. And as I started focusing on my breath, my heart rate dropped. I started feeling better. And, and so I'd say, well, I'm going to just describe it this way. When you got to that point, you attained parasympathetic coherence, something that I call a competence, that every mammal should have that happen naturally, easily, not having to go into the gym to learn how to breathe right, to be able to attain optimal function in every organ system in your body. And yet, we just kind of accept it. It's the traffic, it's my boss, it's the work, I'm go, 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 go. And so what happens is, in our Western environment, we have this low-grade, chronic stress that almost is nuanced. It's not like obvious mm. stress, like all of a sudden I got chased by a saber-toothed tiger and you're up on the top branch of the tree and your heart's beating and you're panting. and That's obvious, right? You know that. But how about when... You know, you wake up in the morning and you didn't maybe have that great of sleep. You have the coffee and you're out in traffic, you're late. And yes, you control it. Maybe you have a panic attack, maybe you don't. Maybe you have some anxiety. Maybe you think it's because, uh, you know, you didn't miss, you, you didn't make the deadline for work or whatever the case may be. So our lives in the West are full of that environment. Right, like we've created that environment. So this is what Robert Sapolsky talks about in that book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcer. But what's important to understand is we were not adapted for that environment that we created. We evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, certainly tens of thousands of years. The argument could be between 70 and 50,000 years ago, but be that as it may. We've evolved, um, mammals have evolved that to, to live a different way as hunters and gatherers, and even though we became very efficient in food acquisition, if you will, because of language, um, it's it's there's been a little bit of a, a double-edged sword in you know the beginning of the agricultural revolution, which we talked about, and then there was an inflection at the industrial revolution that changed our environment, that has now fostered something that's causing a lot of chronic, preventable pro-inflammatory diseases of modern life. So you're saying we evolved to have super, super high stress, getting chased by a bear situations 1% or 0.1% of the time, and then like 99.9% .9 of the time we were calm. Whereas you're saying now there might not be those really, really extreme stresses, but we're getting micro stresses constantly throughout the day, uh, Alarm clock in the morning, traffic, boss, you know, like whatever. Yes. Constantly. And that's affecting us. 
how, okay, I could see how that affects us, but but how, what does that but we're not, flow limitation? Okay, but we're not aware of it. So here's where the discussion begins. So okay. um, what you just described is what we focus on, what I just call life, psychological stress, right? And so um, that's different than physiologic stress. So the physiologic stress comes from a threat to gas exchange, the most basic activity that every cell in our body requires, which is the exchange of uh, carbon dioxide for oxygen to what? To feed metabolism. We're not going to get into all the biochemistry. Very, very basic um, uh, aspect of moment-to-moment function that we assume that it's just happening and that, that it's happening optimally. Yes, it's happening, but is it happening optimally? And so what largely governs that is the status of the autonomic nervous system. And that if there's this background stress, physiologic stress, then it upregulates the uh, a number of different, or it results in a number of different problems, what we call medical comorbidities, that are associated with just breathing, not breathing optimally. And, you know, you've heard me talk about this uh, previously in other previous podcasts, but it's baked into our culture, where we're only now starting to understand about the importance of sleep, that third of our lives that we spend, you know, um, in the state to have our brains and our bodies recover. But how about with athletics? You know, I would talk about that, that athlete, that point guard that misses the free throws to win the game, he choked. Or the receiver in that corner of the end zone where the ball hits him in the hands and, you know, he drops it, you know, in our culture. Say, oh, that guy choked. Well, what are they talking about? Talking about has to do with breathing, right? You're, he stopped breathing. It stimulated a sympathetic response and the muscle uh, engrams aren't working the same way. So we know if you're fumbling and panicked, you don't function optimally versus when you're clear-headed and calm. We make better decisions. So all those other things that call that life, you know, it's just like everyone's got a job, there's traffic, that's a reality. It's our response to those stress factors that really gets us in trouble. Well, when it's physiologic and you're not aware of it because you can't breathe through your nose very well and your mouth breathing. Now that completely dis- disrupts this very important function of gas exchange. We were not intended to breathe through the mouth. There is not one mammalian species on the planet that breathes through the mouth. And you th- you've heard me talk about how well, gas, it, uh, you know, dog panting is heat exchange. Yeah, right. They're not breathing through the mouth, right? right. But I don't think there are any mammals that could, that can even breathe through their mouth, right? Like physically. No, they can't. Yeah, they physically cannot. And they, 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 they don't know because it requires a very specific neurology. And in fact, humans, uh, when you're born, cannot breathe through the mouth for the first three months of life. We're obligate nasal breathers. Think about it. The infant that's born is latching, right? So the mouth is occupied to eat while they're breathing through the nose. And there's a very specific cadence uh, and primitive reflex that that fosters that, and it's not until about the third month that the larynx begins to descend. It's called laryngeal descent. It was defined 
you know, first by uh, Victor Nagus, who's a um, basically an otolaryngologist that did research in comparative biology, looking at Swip gave us language. Yeah, the the baby can can breathe and eat at the same time. Adults can't do that, like you're saying, because of language. Like we have the ability to speak, and then we can switch for like eating. We switch, and then if we mess that up, we choke. Right. Well, On right, right. So yeah. Food. So we're supposed to. Um, be able to do that. So we're the only mammals that have what's called soft palate epiglottis uh, lock. Yeah. So if we look here, this is the epiglottis and this is the soft palate and the uvula. And every other mammalian species, this is closed. So there's one tube for food to go into and one tube to carry you know, oxygen and, and, and carbon dioxide. It's only in Homo sapien, that we have this descent that occurs. So baby is crawling around and can make sounds like any animal, any can mammal, speak. but it cannot speak. That usually starts occurring about anywhere from 10 to 12 months of age when the larynx descends and there's enough neurology to allow them to start phonating. That's what I was going to say. but. It it's not just brain function that allows them to speak. It's also something physical that's happening. Oh, yes. That's interesting. I think most people think, including myself, think it's just a, a thing that, that happens in the brain, and then they're able to speak. But Yeah, so that was defined. It's called the Great Leap Forward. Again, um, the science would say it started about 70,000 years ago, where uh, what's called a supralaryngeal vocal tract, the SVT, uh, was created. So we were bipedal. We already had a pretty big brain, but what allowed us to outcompete all our competitors was the ability to have language. So we could actually talk about food acquisition. We could create traditions. We could teach our offspring about you know what's a poisonous mushroom, et cetera, et cetera. We can we can um, talk about the weather. We could start figuring out our environment. We were the only ones that were able to do that with language. And so this vocal track, what it did is it essentially destabilized the airway. It made the airway less stable to the advantage of being able to have language. So we had language 70,000 years ago? Um, it, it's it, about 70,000 years ago. There's arguments that it could be 50,000 years ago, but... Uh, Either way, side note, human civilization developed so slowly. I mean, like, what's considered human civilization is like 12,000 years ago. And you're saying we had language for 50,000 years? Yeah, the beginning, that long? the beginning of language. Um, and actually, from a geologic point of view, it's happened very quickly. I mean, if you look sure. at, if you look sure. from a geologic point of view, and evolution takes a long, long time. And that's where... Um, you know, genetics comes in, and then the environment. So our environment actually can create very, very uh, quick changes that can result in some of the problems that, that, that we see. But yeah, it, it was about uh, 70,000 years ago that, that the larynx began to descend. And so when you have language, think about what we do. The fricative sounds, the symbolic sounds. We're taking pockets of air, and we're manipulating them with our, t with our jaws, and our lips, all these muscles, to make like a fricative sound or a sibilant sound where we bring our lower jaw uh, so that the 
front teeth come together and the tongue's behind it and it's a small space that uh, creates a sound that is a symbol like an s mm-hmm. if and and that creates a, a phonetic sound that we can now turn into language right so it's a series of those so, and it requires a very unstable a relatively unstable uh, airway so a chimpanzee can't do that uh, a tiger can't do that they can make sounds but obviously they don't have the neurology either but part of what helped us with our brain function in our prefrontal cortex is the advent of language because we had brain very large brains we used tools for for eons before this occurred and then very very quickly civilization occurred so i will just argue with you that this actually happened pretty quickly right and i only compare the the speed of progress to modern age so right. we move like 20 yeah. years ago was and that's a nanosecond right 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 so okay now we have the ability uh, for language which is great but as a consequence we're also the only mammal that can mouth breathe how does that uh, lead into stress right so um, so that function has changed as a result of many uh, that's the beginning of the, the problem the great uh, the great leap forward is what it's called that um, now kind of set us up for the problems that we have right now and so the way our faces grew when we were hunters or gatherers was downward and forward. Um, and what fostered that is first, you know, the latch. So being able to nurse takes a lot more muscle function than using a bottle that's rather passive. So it begins with not only the muscle function, but the neurology that's developed to be able to have that muscle function properly, the software, if you will starts changing uh, to a different swallowing pattern. And now our, you know, our faces are not developing downward and forward. They're more of what's called an adenoid face, these longer face that affects, adversely affects the caliber, if you will, of the airway that also may be unstable. And so it's a number of different things that are going on. This is what's confusing. It's kind of nuanced. So people you know, that talk about may not know the whole big picture. That's why I say structure, function, and behavior. Breathing is a behavior. Behavior is physiology and action, as my friend Peter Litchfield would say. So you kind of have to have a good grasp of the structural as well as the functional and the behavioral manifestations of the breathing, sleeping problem. And in the healthcare system that's very siloed, hyper-specialized, knowing just maybe a lot of, just one aspect of it prevents an an integrated understanding of what the problem is, which may lead to uh, ill-advised treatment or therapies that are maybe predictable. And so there, I mean, this is just such a huge discussion, but I I think having a deeper understanding of proper breathing and, and sleeping and I'll just use a well-known quotation from Donald Enloe, who is considered the father of craniofacial biology, uh, who, who wrote the book uh, Essentials of, of um, um, or Essentials of Facial Growth with Mark Hans at Case Western some decades ago, would say is the airway is the keystone for the face. 
What's that mean? So these Gothic arches, you know that you have these stones that are kind of coming up, and the one at the top is the keystone. If it's, if, if it's in a correct position, it stabilizes everything that's around it. If it's not, then everything can, you know, um, fall apart. And so he was trying to say that the airway, how we're born, how we breathe, is largely determining how our faces grow. So when we're breathing through the nose, there's not too much, not too little resistance. You want some resistance because it stimulates activity of the bone cells, pneumatization of the sinuses that drives our faces downward and forward. If your mouth breathing, there's no resistance. So the vector goes down. The tongue being on the roof of the mouth every time you swallow 12 to 1400 times a day, it's pulsing and basically expanding the palate. Um, the lips together. So there are all these things that is changed based on how we're born, how we feed, you know, the, the, it, it's not just what's in the food, it's the consistency of the food that disrupts the software that governs how we function autonomically. You're talking about this lack of facial stability. Um, what I think a lot of people can relate to that they could actually see so they could understand what that means. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it's um, the, the ortho patient that had crooked teeth, they get braces, their teeth are straight, and then their teeth get crooked again if they don't wear a retainer every night, right? Is right. that an example of lack of stability in the face? Right. It, that, yeah, it's an unstable situation. You're going against nature. It, it, I, I would just say it this way. Crooked teeth is we, you know, an orthodontist would see a crooked teeth as a problem to fix because patients see it as unesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet the crooked teeth is nature's solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. There wasn't enough development. It's not like there's a gene or a set of genes or alleles that call for a crooked teeth. And if they didn't have that problem, they'd have straight teeth naturally. Yes. And they wouldn't collapse, and they wouldn't collapse if they didn't wear a retainer. The way it happened for... Yeah tens of thousands of years going back. Everyone had straight teeth. Uh, I mean, you, you could see that the anthropologists have been talking that, uh, about that for a long time. We just didn't have crooked teeth. In fact, we didn't have uh, decay. Um, that only occurred, you know, with the introduction of fermentable carbohydrates like sugar and all that. And, and that's it's kind of another modern risk factor, not necessarily related um, to what we're talking about, but somewhat yeah. related. But um, it's, it's how we diagnose as a provider, a clinician, how we, how we look at the, uh, the, the problem. So you see straight teeth and you say, oh, those are, you know, that's, um, you know, that's a pretty smile. And yet, is it really a pretty face? So maybe, you know, is it really about the straight teeth or is it about having that wide, big square jaw forward? So you can have somebody who's got really wide um, jaw, big, 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 beautiful smile, and maybe the teeth aren't perfectly straight, but looks a lot better than someone who has a perfectly straight, but they're very narrow. You know, so, you know, form follows function. There's a reason why nature, this, this is what ends up happening uh, in a natural, organic environment that we've changed quite a bit, not recognizing how those changes influence our outcomes. So, so nature's ideal, you'd have the, the straight teeth, 
the the broad face. Yeah, like you know, like you know, this hundred year old there. skull. There is no orthodontics. The teeth are straight and all thirty two teeth. The wisdom teeth are there, and there's plenty of room for the wisdom teeth. So when you have wisdom tooth impaction. You know, when I was, again, I'm repeating myself when I was in dental school, so I would, because we evolved and we didn't need it. No, that's, that, that is. Uh, yeah, why do we pull wisdom teeth? Then? Well, because there wasn't enough facial development, so there's not enough room for those third molars to come in. But naturally, we should never be pulling no, wisdom teeth. No, no. Uh, if you had downward and forward, there'd be enough length of the jaw to accommodate yeah. all the 32 teeth with room to spare. I mean, this is what we see. No one's making this up. This is what we've seen in hundreds and hundreds of digs of Homo sapien all over the planet. And the only time it occurred where it was a problem is in a, um, in a society that was already diseased. There were health problems, which is the exception, not the rule. Yeah. So then we, we talked about the ideal organic environment and what that fosters in growth assuming there's no disease, mm -hmm. right, et cetera. But then what's kind of happening now is you might not have that perfect facial development, therefore your teeth get crooked. Then we try to come in with orthodontics and save it, and then now you have straight teeth, but then you don't have the accompanying face, and more importantly, the accompanying health and function that goes along with that teeth collapse back to normal if you don't wear a retainer. Um, what do you think, or do you think we could be attacking maybe the root cause instead of just doing braces, making the teeth straight, and fixing the root cause would make the teeth straight naturally? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, if you Assuming you caught it early enough. If you caught it yeah. early enough, 100%. Our program allows for that. I mean, that's nature's plan what we call the genotype, right? It's what the genetic recipe is. The phenotype is what actually ends up expressing. expressing. And so if you had the phenotype expressed as was the intended genotype, you'd be much closer to uh, being optimal. And, and, you know, interesting, I mean, you know, you, there's so many studies that actually shown that. One is Harvold's monkey study, where they he, basically they sewed sutured silicone um, plugs into the nose um, and a forced mouth breathing and all those young monkeys ended up having the patterns that we see, you know, crowding and, and they, they were sick. The most important thing is those monkeys ended up being sick. Um, one of them actually died. And then when they removed the, the, uh, the, the plugs, they started normalizing, never caught up to optimal but they started normalizing. So, you know, this essentially, I mean, this uh, Linder Erickson, uh, Vargervik, uh, McNamara, Woodside, I mean, I could go on all the studies that have actually shown that this is exactly what's happened. But I, I think we've just lost our way uh, with this whole problem of, you know, straightening teeth. We're, we're missing the point. We're over-treating the wrong problem. Right. We're, we're organizing the, 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 the chairs in the top deck of the Titanic, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, you, you know, we really want to get to the root cause. Yeah, and, and let's say you don't even care about the spatial aesthetics. You right. don't care. You should still care because it, it's your function that is, is adversely affected by 
by how you're growing. And that might be manifested as maybe not looking movie star attractive, but there's right the form follows the function. Like if it if it looks good, we perceive it as looking good, it might be a sign of health. And that's why we perceive it as attractive, right? Well, yeah. Uh, so that's its own discussion. I think we should talk about it. But uh, let's go back to what we started, the, the, right. the types of stress. We're talking about a, t- a totally different type of stress. Yeah, back to the this... Stress and, and, and breathing. So oftentimes I'll ask parents, you know, it, it's like they come in and they know the kid uh, that there's some things going on. So let's say they come in, they need braces. First thing in my ma- mind is, okay, let's not look at a downstream problem yeah. uh, I, uh, of... of the upstream cause. Meaning I, that the crooked teeth are just a sign of the actual problem and right. we should attack the actual problem, not right. the crooked teeth. Because invariably what you find is there's a cross bite or a narrow arch and then now they can't breathe as well but they're not aware of it. Maybe they're sleeping on their stomach, maybe they're snoring, uh, maybe they're wetting the bed. There are all kinds of what we call uh, stress or distress. And so for me, if you know and, uh, and understand all the studies that have actually shown that if you threaten gas exchange, um, uh, as Dr. David Guzal has shown, is you have inflammation in the brain. Um, and when you have inflammation in the brain, it, it affects every organ system. Now, the fact that you may not be able to see it because it's happening at the level of, uh, of the cell or even the tissue doesn't change the fact that there's a stress. So, for example, um, babies that are born prematurely oftentimes suffer from what's called periodic breathing. And the periodic breathing is a disruption in, uh, in proper gas exchange. But interesting, there's so many downstream consequences. One of them is the bone, the bone metabolism changes so that the bones don't mineralize properly, don't grow properly, the facial bones. What does that breathing look like? How do the premature babies it, breathe? It, it's, it's kind of almost like a, a sleep apnea. They, they, they breathe and then they stop. They breathe and then they stop, but they're not obstructed. Kind of it's a neurologic condition. What's that? They're kind of holding their breath. Yeah, it, it's n- not by intention. It's not, you know, the rhythmic uh, uh, breathing. And, and, you know, if you talk to a NICU uh, nurse, you know, it's like, what you know, what do they do? They just kind of monitor, maybe caffeinate them, you know, give them a stimulant until they, you know, get old enough. There are other problems also with premature babies. It's not enough surfactant in the lungs for the gas exchange. I I want to just really focus on the point is that it disrupts the way the facial bones develop. Um, We also know it is predictive of obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, vascular remodeling, cognitive problems, behavioral problems, uh, IQ problems. So the stakes are really high, mm-hmm. of which the aesthetic. crooked teeth have yeah. the, the, are the least important thing. The mouth breathing is a solution from nature, oftentimes, to the problem that they can't breathe through the nose. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, there are other causes as well, but as an example, it, it's like... It's not the fact that they're just mouth breathing like they, that's not the way the neurology was designed. They're supposed to breathe through the nose. You have to ask, why are they mouth breathing? They're compensating. Is they're it functional or structural? Right, right. And so putting tape on the lips is like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's 
okay as a short-term problem. You breathe rides, tape, but it's not addressing the underlying problem that will have lifelong consequences, especially if it's during growth and development. And so I'm not going to wait till teenage braces age. You know, I'm not an orthodontist, but that's what the orthodontist wants. But at that point, it's easier treatment. The baby teeth have fallen out. You can put braces on or clear aligners, but it's already too late. The ring's already out of the bell. But if you're not asking the questions about health or you don't know how to measure it, that's the other thing is I measure with high resolution pulse oximetry, validated pediatric sleep questionnaires, talk to the parents about birth history, all these things that will tell us that, and then you treat them. You're not just looking at their face and making subjective, no, uh, no. yeah, okay. No, and, and, and the, you know, for me, when I, you know, really started doing this, you know, whatever, 15 years ago, it's like, people thought I was crazy. It's like, you know, uh, how could we get this wrong? And there's not enough science to validate it. Now it's very, very clear. Now it's mainstream. You have big guys with 12 million followers talking about putting medical exactly. tape on sleep. And yeah, it, I, yeah, I was talking, just funny. I was talking about taping back, um, it had to be close to 15 years ago. And, and some of these thought leaders were like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. There's no science. That's, and now that they're prescribing it. Like, and now you go on the internet and everyone's talking about doing that. Yeah. I think they missed the point. They did miss the point because you still might have bad habits of, of, of breathing. Your tongue might still be collapsing from the top the roof of your mouth. Right. The tape just kind of helps you get through the night breathing through your nose, but you're sure not fostering the, proper growth yeah right right right. and even CPAP for somebody that has uh full-blown obstructive sleep apnea put this mask on it's compressing the face it's actually aging the face um it, it, if I have a patient on on CPAP I want them to be able to use uh nose pillows so there's no pressure on the face and they're breathing through the nose and if they can't then they go to the mask they're not asking the question why so, and, and I'm not going to say that the answer is nasal surgery, you know, it, it's, it's more often than not, it's going to be skeletal expansion. Well, speaking of aging the face, they say that stress ages you. Mm -hmm. I want to get back to stress. Might that be because the stress causes you to breathe improperly and therefore that affects the growth of your face? Might Again, let's, let's make a distinction, not conflate psychological stress versus um, physiological stress. Sure, psychological stress though leads to some physiological stress, no? Like yeah, it, it does. Yeah. It, if it I'm does. anxious, I'm gonna, if I'm anxious, psychological stress, I'm gonna breathe more quickly, more rapidly, mm -hmm. hold my breath a little bit, right. which is the physiological stress. Right, right, so um, psychological stress, the reason why it's easy to understand it is because there's language associated with it. It's part from the limbic system. There's a part of the brain that can express it's the traffic, it's my job, it's my boss, it's my spouse, right? Physiologic stress doesn't have that. It just has it. It's a deeper, more primitive type of stress at the level of gas exchange that has these downstream you know, consequences. So if you go to bed with a plugged nose, for instance, you got a cold or whatever, you know you're gonna have a lousy night's sleep that night. This is an example of physiological Physiologic, stress. Physiologic, right. Okay. It may not be looked as that, but then you wake up in the morning and your brain isn't rested and your body's not because you didn't get the three to five 
um, cycles, really nice cycles, uh, sleep cycles. You didn't go through that, where the body repairs itself and all that. So that's when we're sick, right? And, and you know that the day is not going to go quite as well as it would if you had amazing sleep. You popped out of bed and the world's like, you could, the colors are brighter, everything. I, you know, you're in parasympathetic coherence. You close the deal. You make really good decisions. And, and it could be very nuanced because you have someone that's very high functioning. You know, they're high functioning and they could just make it through. So that's part of really understanding, you know, um, uh, the individual situation. Um, but the uh, stress, that physiologic stress, also upregulates the release of stress hormones, like cortisol, noradrenaline, um, you know, epinephrine, and, and, and those all have metabolic effects that if it's every day, has problems. You know, what you eat, what your brain says that you want to eat. And like, I, I argue that, that weight gain is a sign of stress. Um, yes, it could also be because you're eating Cheetos all day long. Um, because- That might be the manifestation of how you deal with stress. Though. It could it, it could be. Um, and yes, the food supply, no question, is is a risk factor. But I don't like the fact that it's like that's what it is. It's okay. that simple. Then what is it? Um, because you could also have perfectly uh, perfect food that's you know whole foods and and, and all that, and still have the same problem. Okay. Um, maybe Matt, and and there's a lot of work. So is it a metabolism issue? So no. Well, so if you're in a fight or flight, you know. Your body needs sugar, it needs carbohydrates now, fight or flight. It's, it's like mm. putting your, uh, your, your pedal on the gas and you're hitting it. And you're taking a, using a lot of energy and you know the brain isn't going to say, oh, I'm going to eat a stalk of celery and wait an hour before I get the sugar out of it. It's going to say, I want a Snickers now. You know what I'm saying? It's the, 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 uh, the glucose is immediately available for the cell to start doing, and then of course you go through, um, you know, the, the metabolic dysregulation that these cycles that create a lot, a lot of problems and weight gain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, complex topic. Um, uh, a simple example that I used is, and I see that with patients that when they're breathing well and they're sleeping well and they're chill parasympathetic coherence and you do nothing different the weight just comes off um, and I'm not talking about somebody who is already very obese that has uh, insulin resistance as a result of the uh, the ascites they have in their midsection right that it becomes its own organ I'm just talking about normal um, uh, you know Situations. Because their body doesn't crave the the simple carbs and sugar. Uh, no, I I mean if you're in parasympathetic, no way. I mean we we lived, um, spending six to eight hours a day, chewing and finding food. We ate when we could. Right now we sit down and eat a very highly caloric meal, and these kids will leave in fifteen minutes, right? You know, and then it's going to have a, an effect. Um, so, 
I, you know, I just think we need to understand our modern risk factors. We can accept them and understand strategies of how we can obviate the ill effect of yeah. this environment that we created. I, I don't want to go back to the Stone Age. Right. That's a good moral of the story. Is there going to be these psychological risk factors for stress? Like we were talking, your boss, traffic, stress throughout the day. That's going to be the case. And yes. we can't. That's get our rid environment. Of that. But what's important is how we, we deal with the stress and make sure it doesn't manifest as physiological stress, doesn't manifest in over breathing, not sleeping well. Those are the things we have to we have to separate to live a healthy life. Right, right. And another way of summarizing it is, you know how your day is going to go when you wake up having amazing sleep versus when it's lousy sleep. So that's a microcosm for your life. So if getting amazing sleep, and and that's somewhat qualitative, it's somewhat subjective, but we kind of understand what that is. It's kind of like saying that's beautiful, it's subjective, but I am the beholder. Um, amazing sleep, your brain has recovered, your body's recovered, you're gonna you're gonna function bat- better, and we can get into down to the cellular level and tissue level what that function, what how your body's functioning that day, very different than lousy sleep, and then you throw fuel on the fire, right? You have coffee releases insulin, and then you have that muffin to go with it. And now you're going down, and and you're kind of on a sugar high. You're kind of getting through the day, and then happy hour occurs. You walk walk yourself off the ledge with uh, a couple of Tito's on the rocks or something and, and, or beers or whatever. And now you're kind of calm. And, and yet now there is the ill effect of, you know, uh, of the alcohol on sleep, uh, on, on sleep and yeah. things like that. And, and so, and then you repeat it all over again. And, and so this chronic inflammation ends up causing all kinds of problems. And, and so, um, yeah, so, Sleep is so important. Nature would not provide a third of our lives in doing it, and we should do it very well, very com- uh, uh, competently. And we don't. We're a sleep-deprived society. We're only now starting to understand. And you cannot sleep well if you can't breathe well. And when we talk about breathing well, that means structure, function, behavior. And so that's kind of that link of wellness, the difference between being well versus not being sick. Right. So. Right. Well, awesome. Yeah. That's a good place to end it. We'll, we'll pick up in the next episode. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks. Great. Yeah.